0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at GraceCitySD.com.
1: Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, why would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. This is God's word. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come before you, and we just thank you that, um, that we're alive today, that the air that we get to breathe in our lungs is such a gift, um, and just that we can be in a space to come together and read your word and be a community. Um, I pray that you bring peace and calmness to our minds and our hearts. I pray that you prepare them to be able to hear from your spirit today. Um, bless Jonathan as he comes to to teach what you have taught him to us, God. Um, thank you for this time, and thank you for this family. In your name, amen. And I'm excited to introduce Jonathan Kerhulis. He's um, from Redeemer in Encinitas. This guy right here. <laughs> um, their, their heart is really awesome. They want to see more churches here in San Diego, and they're, it's one of their, their biggest joys and biggest passions that God has put on them. So it's really awesome to have him here today. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, listen, if you're disappointed
0: that Randall's not preaching, I'm disappointed that Randall's not preaching too. I like to hear Randall preach as well. You guys are are blessed to have him, and I'm blessed to have him as a friend, and so thank you for having me be here and be a part of this day, and Laura as well. Um, I was here, I think it was maybe a year and a half ago, Randall, somewhere, I don't know if it was that long ago, a year ago, somewhere around that amount of time, and you guys have changed a lot. Uh, you, you have um, grown in so many different ways, and I'm really excited for you. Um, church is a difficult thing to be a part of. If you're not a Christian, entering into a Christian community is a difficult thing to take a step into. Uh, we realize that. Grace City realizes that, and as a church that has been in San Diego for over a decade. I haven't been a part of that church for that long. Our family's been here about the same amount of time as Randall's family, but there are churches who have preceded us, who want to see a lot of new churches started. We're so excited for you to come to life and to be a family in this part of San Diego. Um, as I've looked around, and, and a couple little anecdotes from today, and then I'm going to jump in. Um, as I've looked around, I, I have noticed that you have done an, an amazing job setting up church in a facility that is not a church, that is a school. Um, it looks beautiful. Um, all of the things are very nice. You guys are a classy church, I might say. Yeah, you are. And this place, this place feels good when I come in here. Uh, I even went into the restroom. Okay and I went right out here to the right before all of you were here or most of you were here and I said to myself, man, this place smells good, right? And then I started looking for a particular type of toilet that men know what I'm talking about and I started looking around and I realized there's not one of those in here and so I started saying, like, am I in the wrong restroom? And of course I was and that's why it smells so good because men's restrooms don't smell like that. So ladies, thank you for humoring me. There was nobody in there at the moment, thankfully. So I, embarrassed, sheepishly scooted out to my restroom. Um, but everything is, is um, and beautiful, and it's not about the external, is it, at all? It's not about setting up church. It's about the, the dirty and the gritty and the daily tough stuff of being a church, and I know that that's what you're about. So thank you for letting me be a part of today. <clears throat> We are looking at John 14, and this is a a beautiful text. This is gonna be a demanding text, I think. It's gonna challenge you in different ways. Uh, There are seven places in John's gospel. You may have looked at some of them already. I know that you're gonna get to a couple more over the next two or three weeks. Uh, where Jesus talks about who he is. It's a moment of self-identification. There's only seven of those places in John's Gospel. They are called the seven I am statements of Jesus. And in some ways, this is the most easy one to deal with. It's also the most difficult one to deal with, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is Jesus' self-identification. And so if you're new to Christianity, exploring or skeptical, this is going to be a great three weeks for you because you're going to get to the heart of Jesus' self-understanding, not who Randall thinks Jesus is or who I think Jesus is or who Christianity thinks Jesus is, but who Jesus thinks Jesus is. Because at the center of our faith is one man who's part of a big God And so understanding him and how he identifies himself, I think, is very important for our faith. And so today, one of the I I am statements. I think this goes without saying, but we live in a social environment that is very distinct from that of the past. Uh, We live in a time and a place where tolerance and fairness and open-mindedness have become the dominant values of the public square, and those are good values, by the way. But tolerance, fairness, and open-mindedness have made it very difficult for Jesus and for us to self-identify as the way, the truth, and the life. We live in an environment where it's considered unenlightened, maybe even outrageous, to make exclusive claims of any kind, much less religious truth claims that are as deep and as impactful as this one is to our faith There's the fear that exclusive claims, the view that my way is right and your way cannot be the same as my way cannot be right. That is what exclusivity is about. We're gonna deal with that today because I think the text deals with that and there's a potential for us to kinda skirt around it and I didn't wanna skirt around it. I wanted to spend some time kinda mulling over this idea of what it means in our social environment, in our context, to deal with the difficult claim that Jesus is unique, no one like him, in a world that says that that is outrageous, intolerant, and naive, if not downright dangerous. How do we deal with that sort of perspective? There's a great book written by David Kinnaman, and the book is called, You Lost Me? Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Great title, and here's a quote from that book. Kinneman says, many in the next generation believe that Christians have an insider-outsider mentality that is always ready to bar the door to those who don't meet their standards. This flies in the face of millennials' collective values and reference points. Tolerance has been the cultural north star for most of their upbringing. Inclusiveness, diversity, and political correctness are ideals that have shaped this generation. At the core of Christian belief is this perspective on the absolute uniqueness of the person of Jesus Christ. We believe, Orthodox Christianity has historically believed that there is one God and three persons and the one person of the Trinity, the Son, became a human being, lived 33 perfect years. And that if you place your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that that is the only way to experience the fullness of the Father and the fullness of life to come, but I also wanna say that what the writer of the gospel is also saying is it's the fullness of life now. And that many people think that because there's this exclusive claim of Christians, that it's going to lead to oppression, that it's going to lead to um, division, that it's going to lead to distinctiveness, that we are an insider and you are an outsider. But I want to pose by the end of the sermon today that I think Christianity holds the ingredients for us to not just tolerate other people who are different than us, but to actually live with them, engage with them, think with them, love them, and forgive them. Right, Work together. Work together instead of just tolerate. There's a thinness to tolerance, but there's a beauty to grace. And so I think Christianity is something very unique. And so the three things I'm going to walk you through is that Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life shapes our, number one, orientation towards Jesus, how we are to relate to Him. Secondly, it shapes our identity in the community. And thirdly, our posture towards the world. Understanding Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life shapes our orientation to Jesus, identity in the community, posture towards the world. Just so you don't think I'm gonna preach a 90-minute sermon, the bulk of my sermon is point one. And then point two and three are basically gonna be application points, all right? So you don't get scared. All right, so Jesus as the way, the truth, and life shapes our orientation toward Jesus. Look at verse one. We'll just reread a a brief part of that to set the context. In verse one, John writes, and this is Jesus speaking, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, and believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. The reason this is significant is because in the context of chapters 13 through around 17 or 18, Jesus is having a discussion in the upper room with his 12 men. These are his disciples whom he has spent three years with. He is on the eve of his crucifixion. This is called his farewell discourse. Literally, this is a couple of hours before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is betrayed, he's arrested, and he's crucified, so he has a few things left to say to his 12 men, and so this is part of this upper room discourse where there's tension in the air, a lot has happened. And so Jesus jumps in with verse one where he says, let not your hearts be troubled. But there is a lot of trouble in the text because we just realized that one of the 12 named Judas is gonna betray Jesus. He has left and he has gone out into the night. That just happened. And then maybe the most valiant of the 12, Peter says, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus, and Jesus goes, will you? You'll betray me by the end of the night. And then we also realize in this text and in other places that Jesus is gonna leave and for the first time in three years that there is no opportunity for the 12 disciples to go with him. Can you imagine the sadness? You're beginning to realize there's something absolutely unique about Jesus and he goes, men, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. By the way, your leader, he's gonna betray me. One of the 12, he's already gone. That's the context for verse one where he goes, men, Don't let your hearts be troubled. And in part, what he's saying is you thought that you could lean into each other for three years. He says, you can't trust one another. He says, but you can trust me. That's where he starts. Look how verse one goes. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus is saying that even though it seems like their world is gonna be crashing around them, they can't trust one another, he says, you're gonna have to trust me because he plans to bring them somewhere. He's got travel plans ahead. I love travel plans. Jesus has travel plans, and so he says to them, I'm gonna bring you back to the Father because the place where the Father dwells has ample space for everyone. It's so interesting that this text that is um, pinpointed and kind of pushed aside as the exclusive side of Christianity is radically inclusive, isn't it? Where he goes, I gotta go back to my Father's house, which has many rooms. What he's saying is it's big and it's wide open, and I'm going to create space for you there radically inclusive but maybe more significantly jesus says in this text if i go to prepare a place for you know that i'm not going to leave you here with all this tension i am going to bring you back to that place so that where i am you may be also this is significant and this is in part why jesus is saying there's a lot going on but don't let your hearts be troubled I'm going to go to prepare a place for you and for us so that you might be welcomed home to the Father. And then almost nonchalantly, it's in verse 4, Jesus adds these words, and you know the way to where I'm going. And I love Thomas because he's just like me, just like you. Thomas is like, oh man, I don't know if the other 11 are thinking this. Jesus says, you, we should know the way to where he's going, but he looks around and goes, Jesus, we don't even know where you're going, much less know the route to get us there. And Jesus almost immediately responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In verse one, Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. That is Jesus' way of saying, if you think the Father is real and he's the one God, I'm the same. He's making pretty bold claims. And then here in this text, he is pointing to the fact that the only way you can actually have access to this Father is through him. And if you are skeptic, If you're kind of looking in on Christianity, even if you have been a Christian for a long time, in our social context, this may be the Jesus that you have a difficult time with. This may be the one that you want to kind of push against and wonder if you can leave John 14 out of your regular Bible reading or at least your conversation. I want to at least ask, what makes Jesus so certain that he's the only way to the Father? Hopefully, that's a good question for us to wrestle with. What makes Jesus so certain that he's the only way to the Father? Why is he so willing to dismiss other possibilities? Or to ask the contemporary question, don't all religions essentially teach the same thing? Aren't they different slices of the same pie? Many of you have heard that. So have I. I want to spend a moment on that. Not only that question, but how can competing versions of the truth actually lead in the same direction? Let's start there. How can competing versions of the truth actually lead us in the exact same direction? This may be a familiar illustration, but at least get the ball rolling and our minds thinking. Let's suppose that you owe an insurmountable debt and a huge amount of money, and you realize that the only way that you're gonna be able to pay off this debt is if you work, earn, prove, and work hard your entire lifetime. And then in another scenario, a competing scenario, you owe the exact same amount of money, an insurmountable debt, and then somebody says, hold tight, somebody with an infinite amount of resources is coming to to pay that debt for you, and you don't have to pay. But since somebody looks at those two competing narratives and goes, they're essentially the same story. Same life, same outcome, same emotions, same pressure, same anxiety, you as an individual, because we've all had difficult lives in different ways and distinct ways, would say, that's not fair. No way are they the same story. You would either laugh cry or rage when somebody says those are just the same thing. Because actively receiving, actively achieving is not the same thing as passively receiving. Radically different. And Christianity holds one of those narratives to be very true and the other one to be very true but only about Jesus. And we'll get to that Every other philosophy and religion places the responsibility of achieving your salvation or nirvana or enlightenment or reincarnation upon the shoulders of its disciples. It essentially hands you the shovel and it tells you to dig. And let me just pause by saying, if Jesus had added two words to his statement toward Thomas, he essentially would have handed every disciple that shovel. If Jesus had said to Thomas, I'll show you the way. It's over there, Thomas. Now that I have shown you, go and do. Live as I have lived. Do what I have done. Love as I have loved. It's the way, Thomas, 33 years. You spent three of them directly with me. Go live that way. I'll show you. Christianity would have been lumped over into every other narrative. But the reality is that grace changes the narrative. And so there's something radically distinct happening in the storyline of Christianity. If Jesus had pointed, he would have been a trailblazer. He would have been somebody saying, Go and do, but he doesn't. He says, I am. What a radical claim. I am the way. Leslie Newbegin. Do we have this quote? We may. Leslie Newbegin, he writes Religion has been fertile in producing words to suggest what may lie behind the final curtain, heaven, eternal life, the next world. But in truth, we do not and cannot see what lies beyond. What is made available to us through Jesus is not a sketch of what lies beyond the curtain, but a firmly marked way through the curtain. I am the way. The reality is that even as Christians, we don't know for sure what it's gonna look like on the other side of death. But Jesus says, don't worry too much about that. I'll give you pictures, I'll give you images, I'll give you metaphors, I'll give you a promise that you'll get there, but I am gonna guarantee that I'm the way through. That is what this statement is all about. This is what Jesus is all about. I want you to glance again at verse two. In verse two, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? When Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place for his disciples, he is not thinking to himself, man, good thing I chose to be a carpenter on earth. I got a lot of building to do. Right? It took me six days to build this whole thing called earth. And sometimes as Christians, we assume that Jesus has been in heaven for over 2,000 years. Good thing he was a carpenter and he's pretty skilled because he is building something miraculous and amazing. Can you imagine six days, earth, 2,000 years, heaven? Let me say that it's a beautiful picture, but that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying in this text, he goes, I go to prepare a place for you. I want to bring you home to my Father, but in order for me to bring you home to the Father, I've got to go prepare the place. I've got to go to the cross, so that I can bring you home. That's what this is about. He's not city building right now. He's giving you a path into the city. The city's built. City's there, the Father's there, the Son is now there. But Jesus is not saying, I'm gonna go and labor for you. He goes, I go to prepare a place for you by going to the cross for you. That's the only way that I can bring you home. What Jesus offers us is something radically distinct. I think it's absolutely unparalleled and unrivaled. He doesn't simply show us the way to God. He says, I am the way to God. A little line from a poem by by D.A. Carson says, your way to God is not my way, but me. Because Jesus' way to the Father was the cross. And now our way, because of Jesus, is not the cross, but it's Him, it's Him. And let me add this as I get close to the end of point one. If there were more than one way to the Father, you ought to severely doubt the character of that father. Let me illustrate it like this. Suppose that I'm walking with a group of people across a big bridge. It's a bridge that trains run across. We end up foolishly in the middle of this bridge and we realize that a train is now coming. We cannot get to the either side of the bridge before that train is gonna cross. And so we don't know what to do. And somebody says, if you take your eldest son, Mason, my seven-year-old boy and if you pick him up and you show him to the conductor and you throw him off the bridge to his death that will catch the eye of the conductor and he will diverge the train from this track to the next and we'll all be saved and so I pick up my little boy and I toss him off the bridge only to be told a moment later that there was actually another way and that there is a ladder beside the track. Now, if I had picked up that ladder and kind of flashed it in front of the conductor, that also would have caught his eye. And then he would have diverted to a second track. We could have put the ladder down and climbed our own way to safety. In that scenario, you ought to severely doubt the character of the father who is flippant in tossing his son overboard. Oh, yeah, yeah, my, my son has died. That's a way. Christianity is a way. The cross is a way. But there's other ways. You can trust me. I crucified my son for you. Oh, but there's other ways to me. I'm not sure you or I want to be part of a relationship with a father like that, to be frank. It would be absolutely outrageous for there to be more than one way. But if there is only one way, instead of outrage and anger, there is outrageous joy, knowing that the Heavenly Father loves you that much to give His one and only Son that you might be brought home. Absolutely unparalleled story. Instead of making us work an entire lifetime, God throws his son in front of the train of God's wrath for my sin and your sin. My loves, my selfishness, my self-interest, my self-fulfillment, my best life now. I don't care what God's plan is. I want to live for me. That's at the heart of all of us. And God's wrath, God's train because He's perfect and He's loving and He's righteous. He goes, You're going to live for yourself. I made you to live for me. Something has to give here. There needs to be a punishment for sin. Each of us deserves a cross, but He sends His one and only perfect Son to die in your place. And there is, according to Christianity, no other way to the Father. C.S. Lewis tells a story, and I'll wrap this up with him from the silver chair. Sometimes the story brings it home for us. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it in that second chapter. (laughs) In the story, a little girl by the name of Jill has entered a strange and a magical country at the top of a very high mountain. And after wandering for some time in search of some water to drink, Jill encounters a lion who is lying between her and this deliciously babbling stream. And Jill is terrified of the lion, but she's also dreadfully thirsty. And here's how the story goes. The lion asks her if she is thirsty, and she replies that she's dying of thirst. Then drink, the lion tells her. She's too afraid to venture near the lion and asks if he would mind leaving while she drinks. She quickly realizes the presumption of this request. She might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Meanwhile, the sounds of the running water are making her more and more thirsty." Jill asks the lion if he will promise not to do anything to her if she comes to the stream and drinks. But the lion responds that he makes no such promises. Driven nearly frantic with thirst, Jill comes a step nearer without noticing it. She then asks the lion if he ever eats girls. And the lion responds matter-of-factly, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And when Jill tells the lion that she does not dare come to come and drink, the lion replies that she will then die of thirst. And Jill comes another step near and says, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. But the lion replies to her, but there is no other stream. There is no other stream. And it's a tough saying. It's difficult to wrestle through that. Tension on different sides of that story. But for God to send His one Son as the one way, you have to say to yourself God is after something so much bigger than my conformity, than my outward behavior. God is after something so much bigger. He wants my heart. Because your life is controlled by what you desire. And God wants all of that. And so he sends his son and the storyline gets to the heart of our hearts. Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. It shapes our orientation towards Jesus. I gotta understand Jesus as the way of God, the truth of God, and the life of God. There's no other way for me to relate to him Know the conversation we can truly have. You may begin with Jesus as a teacher, but for you to conclude the story and to bring it full loop, you got to understand Him as the way, the truth, and the only life of God. It orients us to the Son. But secondly, and again, these are really applications. Understanding Jesus as the way, truth, and life, it shapes our identity and community. What does that mean? Our identity and community if i am responsible to craft create uh, make my own way in this world my own meaning my own significance my own identity if that is on my shoulders then there's really only three things that can be that can be an outcome of my having to work for that either i am going to become immensely prideful i am going to be pushed into despair or i'm going to be left very apathetic let me show you how this works if i am creating my own identity this week tomorrow morning I wake up and I have to find who I am today, my own value, my own sense of significance, then really I'm gonna find it in comparison to you. That's the way it goes. I don't compare myself to my pet or to my inanimate object, I compare it to another human being. And so I'm gonna to have to compare myself to you today. And so as I have a conversation with you, I get to know you, I am positioning myself so that I can either elevate myself or I realize I'm not as good as they are today and I escalate myself. But in those moments where I take a step forward, pride ends up being the only thing that is left as an option because I'm realizing today that you're not as strong as me, you're not as smart as me, you're not as active as me, you're not as hardworking as me. I am crafting my own way. Now I realize in a bad day, and they happen a lot, I have a conversation with somebody, and I realize they're so assertive. They're so good looking. They're so fit. They're so tan. They can surf, and I can't, right? Who am I? And on those days in those comparisons, then I stand to the side, and there's this kind of melancholy. There's this woe is me. There's a depression a level of spiritual depression that sets in. So on my good days, I'm prideful, that's who I am. On my bad days, I'm depressed and I'm woe is me. Or if the pressure is simply too much and I've been trying for so long, on those days, I simply become apathetic. I can't make it. So which of those attributes actually feeds the common good and the social fabric so that even if we have different perspectives, we actually get along? Pride, despair, or apathy? Which of those feeds the common good of San Diego? None. But if you can adopt what John Stott calls a a cross-shaped identity, he calls it a cross-shaped identity, where there is on the one hand a self-affirming posture, but also a self-denying posture, because that's what the cross is. If you can adopt a cross-shaped identity, then you can exist in community and be very gracious, not just tolerant, not just thin acceptance, but you can listen, love, and learn from people who are very distant, different and distant from the Christian perspective and realize we're neighbors and we respect and we love and we're different and we forgive because a cross-shaped identity, friends, in a nutshell, because, because it is all about the cross, tells me that on the one hand that I am immensely broken Self-denying. I am more broken than I think I am, to the depths and to the core. Self-denying. Then there's this other side of Christianity that says, you are more loved than you ever imagined. Christ died for you. So which one is it in Christianity? And the answer is yes. Self-denying, self-affirming. I am a sinner, but Christ is a Savior. And so I exist in community with really different people with that mentality. I'm broken like you. I've been accepted when I was an enemy. I should have been pushed out of community, but I was welcomed in so I can exist with a posture of love, acceptance, and forgiveness instead of just tolerance. Isn't that amazing? That the exclusivity of Jesus isn't gonna push you into divisiveness, it's gonna actually be the ingredients that bring us together because Christianity is built on grace. And thirdly, and quickly, Jesus says the way the truth and the life shapes our posture toward the world. Posture towards the world. Tim Keller, he says, if my identity is based on someone who is excluded for me, who was cast out for me, who loved his enemies, then that is gonna turn me into someone who embraces the different. My posture towards the world. At the center of the Christian faith is someone who died praying for his enemies, namely me. And to the degree that this truth captures my imagination and my heart, to that degree will it shape my posture towards the world. As we come to experience the grace that is uniquely found in Jesus, I am finally free to offer love to someone not based on their performance. You may have been loved like that your whole life, having to perform to get an I love you or I'm proud of you. That's not how Christianity works. That's not why the Father loves you. And when that sinks in to the degree that that sinks in, will you be able to offer love like that? I'm compelled to serve other people who are dirty and different because Jesus has washed me because I'm really dirty and I'm really different. I'm discouraged from excluding or rejecting others because of their beliefs or dispositions because I've been included and I've been accepted when I did not believe anything about the loveliness of my God. But he goes, you're my enemy, but I sent my son for you. So it postures me differently towards people who push against me. And yet, we carefully yet recklessly call people into a relationship with the way, the truth, and the life. That's why this church is here. We want people to know the freedom of grace. What would happen to our city if all of you who are church, by the way, went out into the world, surging into the city with a posture like that? Think people would notice the difference? Maybe not the first moment, but I guarantee they would as you come here week after week and the Spirit uses you in every area of influence and relationship that you have that God has given. Maximize it and show people the distinctiveness of Jesus. The greatest apologetic for the exclusivity of Jesus is you. Aside from the scriptures and aside from the Holy Spirit, the greatest apologetic, which is basically argument in favor of exclusivity, is the way you live your life. An argument may win an idea, but you may win a heart. And that's the reality of our role as church. Let me wrap up with a great quote from my friend. His name is Britt Merrick. If you're in the surf world, you may know that family. He's a pastor in California. Here's what Britt Merrick has written. Pastor and author, he says, we undersell Jesus. I love that phrase. We undersell Jesus. We merely describe Jesus as a partner, Jesus as a means, Jesus as an escape. We seldom present Jesus as the source and center of joy that He is. In our failure to do so, we leave young seekers hungry and unsatisfied. We lead them to think that they must satiate their God-given desire for joy in something else. They look for it in fun, family, business, or cultural goods, holiness or purity, sex or adventure. All of these are good, but none of them are ultimate. And so these young seekers wander, looking but never finding. Tell the next generation the truth Jesus is the only source and must be the center of joy for every person. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. I know that I have undersold you to myself. I believe the lie day after day that there's a better life out there, outside of your way and your will and your love. And so I search and I wander and sometimes I keep it neat and clean on the outside, but my heart is a wandering heart until I'm captivated by grace again, which is motivated by mercy, which is new again every morning. It knows no end, no expiration date. What sort of God is there like that? Who doesn't force us to work, earn and pay off whatever is at the end of that rainbow, that beautiful story, which can become a treacherous story when it's about us, but the beautiful story of Christianity is at the end of the rainbow is a crucified king. And it's only through Him that we get the eternal life that has been promised. Only He had the relational clout with the Father to welcome us in. We can't knock on the door of heaven and lean back into our moral record. We cannot do that. The God we serve is too perfect, too moral, too high. Only Jesus has that relationship with his Father, and when we place our faith in him and him alone, he says, him, her, Jonathan, Randall, all of us uniquely named, each of us personally, is with me. I don't deserve that. I do not deserve that. But you have been gracious to change my heart. Help us to surge in the city for you, not to get your attention, but because we have your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.